Welcome to episode three of Metacritic, which we're recording on Friday the 19th of June. Having, I mean, I, I literally kind of woke up to this this morning in the sense that I woke up like slightly before 5am and checked Facebook because that's the kind of unhealthy lifestyle that I lead and saw that someone had posted the previous night when people who are more normal than me were still awake, but I wasn't, that the federal government is cancelling the humanities. James, thoughts? Hi, Mark. Nice to see you. I, I heard about this news um, this morning, a bit after you, and it doesn't seem like the cancellation is imminent. Um, I am beside myself. And very strangely is that uh, friends of mine who didn't do the humanities uh, and don't know much about them are also incensed. So I don't know what that means. It represents something, something very worrying. What, 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 what do you make of it? There's a bunch of things to say about this. One thing that I think we've both reflected on, James, is that, in a sense, the very existence of the humanities and universities in the current year in Australia, etc., is an anomaly. Right? The fact that I get paid to teach philosophy in a university does not sit with the general culture we live in. It seems very, very strange. And I think... Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing here really is kind of history catching up with this. Like, I mean, it's the, that, that metaphor that, that Savoy Zizek used to like to use about the, the financial crisis, you know, like the, the Wiley Coyote has run off the cliff and is not going to fall until he looks down. And I, I don't know when the humanities ran off this cliff. I mean, potentially, I, I've got to think it was like 200 years ago. I mean, I, I've... <laughs> no, <this> is... <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, seemed, that, 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 that sounds like, I mean, it's that old joke. I mean, you know, you know the, the, the first mistake of universities was, you know, the knowledge leaving the, the, the monasteries. But, I mean, what, what, what 200 years ago sounds right. I mean, what, what do you think happened 200 years ago that was the, the catalyst for this? Like, what's, what's the, the moment where we walked off the cliff here? I love how you, you said that old joke about the mistake of the universities was leaving the monasteries. Because as far as I'm aware, that's not an old anything or a joke. That is a recent observation that I made in our conversations, which as far as I'm aware, no one except possibly monks has made before. <laughs> but like, I think we actually, we need to immediately deep dive into this and precisely talk about what the university is, where it's come from. I mean, that's the only way to understand this. And I think this is extremely ill understood. But I mean, the university, as I understand it, admittedly, I'm not a historian of the university, merely a, a captive of the university. But the university started, innocuously enough, as self-organising communities of scholars. Right? You had groups of scholars who coagulated around the scholarly interest, then they began to create a formal organisation which conferred degrees by saying someone was teaching someone else and so on. That's how the universities got their start. They grew greatly in size because... You know, some of the scholars were concerned with, in fact, most of them, one way or the other, with professionally oriented studies. I mean, of course, in the Middle Ages, primarily theology, but theology in the Middle Ages is extremely important discourse, people going to church. Also, of course, law and then later medicine. These are very important practical areas. This is how the university really gets started. It's, it's an institution that exists for pure learning, but gets harnessed to kind of professionalism and certification of, of that's how the university goes, and that's how the university goes for a really long time. Basically until the 20th century. And I think the 20th century is the point at which the university really pivots 
from being a kind of private endowed institution for scholarly learning that OK has these professional associations which have become part of its raison d'etre to being state funded, at least in most of the world, to a lesser extent in the United States, but throughout most of the world, universities become essentially state funded institutions. And this creates a, a kind of slightly weird situation because of the instrumentalism of the state. I mean, this, this already creates a, a really weird position, I think, for the universities, which this is a kind of almost inevitable result of, which is that the universities are understood to be funded by the public for instrumental purposes. The production of like doctors and engineers. I mean, this is, this, is, this is really the core issue because this is how the university sells itself and how the university is justified you know, funding-wise is because it does this, these important forms of research, right, which are important here in the sense that the public at large see these as important. So important scientific and medical research, important teaching of people who will be doctors and engineers, the kind of things we need. And this is the, the, the discourse the Australian government is now pushing. You know, okay, the government funds universities to do this important public good stuff, but that doesn't apply to stuff that's, you know, the, the hobby horse of, of the students. The students themselves should be picking up more of the tab when it comes to studying the humanities because that doesn't, doesn't help us. Now, there is a countervailing left-wing discourse, which is frankly pretty realistic. I mean, it's pretty reasonable, rational, says, well, look, it's a public good in society to have people with a liberal arts education who understand you know the, the finer things in life the way the world works that's why governments fund the arts and all this stuff but this this logic is very at odds with the prevailing neoliberalism and by neoliberalism which is a word i'm sure everyone's heard but I, I feel like people aren't often very clear what it means what i mean is is the idea that the function of the state is solely to enhance the functioning of the market that's the only function the state has. Once you give the state that function, I mean, frankly, all of funding of the universities becomes highly dubious. Because even if it's like medical research or something, according to neo, kind of neoliberal thinking, you're like, well, that should be drug companies should be doing that for profit. So, I mean, even, to, to be honest, this is not as neoliberal as it could get, what we're seeing here. No, right. And I think this is really, I think you're right to say that this is a long time coming. And this is just a... The, the full acceptance of, you know, what I guess what we would call the instrumentalization of reason. You know, this is, this is because once you accept the logic of instrumental reason, then uh, of course the humanities looks toothless and useless within, within society because it, it is of no use. Um, it has no instrumentality. But as you say, this is not the end, this is not the end game, you know, this is actually just, in fact, the beginning. Because as you say that, you know, eventually all these forms of education, when you, when you, when you connect instrumental thinking and labour to the market, the university just will eventually cease to exist because all of it can be done in the private sector. I mean, the irony is that the university, as I suggested, effectively began in the private sector. And indeed, like in America in particular, a lot of the university is still in the private sector. So, the reason it's, it's so catastrophic somewhere like Australia is because, I mean, in Australia, this was a very brief thing, but they, they basically, you know, the university was kind of pumped up really over, because the welfare state in Australia was effectively introduced by Whitlam. People, and I think, even Australians, I think now, younger ones are pretty unaware of this. Australia got the welfare state super late. I mean, Australia was basically running on an American-type model until the 1970s when Australia got this, very briefly, got this 
really quite left-wing government that essentially created a welfare state in Australia and made university education free, completely free, going from basically being private prior to that. And, you know, it's taken, it's taken decades for this to decay, but it's been decaying pretty quickly. I mean, I mean when did Hex come in? 1990? So it was... Think around it, took then, a, yeah. it took about 15 years for free, free university education to disappear in Australia. And Australia was the... After having been the last place in the world basically to introduce free university education, I mean, America's never introduced it, and everywhere else introduced it well before that, uh, it, it was the first place in the world, absolutely the first place, to get rid of free university education uh, by bringing in the HECS scheme. But the HECS scheme, you know, because it, it makes you pay for the university through the tax system, you know, runs under the radar. It doesn't really get in people's faces very much. But there's been a, a kind of constant attempt since then by right-wing governments in particular to deregulate the university sector. You know, I was talking to a friend this morning and he's an engineer and he was making the, the you know, the typical old joke about the uselessness of arts, arts degrees. But it, it, and, and that was all fine. But it, it really does go, come down to a fundamental misunderstanding of what the liberal arts actually is. And as, as you said, like if we accept the, the, the terms and the premises of the government and the prevailing economic order, then, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And as you say, it, it is an aberration, the fact that what we do, I mean, in particular what you do, it is an aberration, it, given, the, given the circumstances. The pessimistic part of me just says, well, this is the end of the humanities, really. I mean, in any, in any genuine sense. Because eventually there won't be anyone left to know what's been lost. I mean, arguably, they're, they're, that's, that's already the case, arguably. I feel that's, that, I mean, that could be a little bit catastrophic simply because we, we are, after all, talking about the humanities in Australia, which, in the global scheme of things, is not very important. You know, the, I mean, the humanities in Australia like has had many kind of shining jewels and, and, and achievements. I mean, it's not it's not nothing. On the other hand, you know, Australia is to, to all intents and purposes a mining colony. I mean, this you know it has been for the last hundred years, and before that, it was a, it was a kind of agricultural colony, uh, and before that, it was it was a kind of strategic slash penal colony. And you know, the, the purpose of Australia is not to produce culture or high ideas. I mean. Of course, there's a vision of Australia. This goes back to what we were talking about last week. There's a vision of Australia that says Australia is a, is a country, you know, <laughs> what, that says Australia is a country. <laughs> Australia is a nation, <laughs> a national culture, <laughs> and, needs to, and needs to produce ideas and, and art and, and all this stuff. But the evidence that Australia is that is actually pretty thin. And I, I think, you know, it goes back to what you were saying last time, very much, right? What is their vision for this country? No, that's right. It's, I, 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 don't, I don't understand what, 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 their, what is their end game? Is it just, you know, it just reminds me of that joke from Blackadder, just continue until everyone is dead. Like, I, I, I don't understand what the end game here is. Presumably, it's just, just private companies doing everything. But I, I don't understand, even if you're, and this is the, the weird tension for conservatives, is that, and you see this um, across the board, is that on the one hand, they want to defend some sort of understanding of tradition in the West, as some kind of as some kind of you know mass of knowledge, but on the other hand, they in terms of what they do funding wise, they 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 do everything in their power to destroy that that legacy, other than the kind of mythologized version that they have in their heads, which isn't they don't actually seem to want to be they don't want it to be taught really. But I mean, this this goes back again to what we were saying last time, which I've been thinking about quite a lot since. But my position as I was developing it when we were talking last time, Australia does not have a coherent national conception. I mean, you were saying this, in fact, more strongly than I was, right? Australia doesn't have a coherent national conception. Well, I mean, this just goes along with that. I mean, here we have to differentiate between a kind of global logic of neoliberalism, and doubtless it's a, near, it's a, it's a global ideology with global consequences. But globally, the consequence here is basically to 
stop putting on free humanities courses for poor people, right? Harvard and Yale are still going to continue to be Harvard and Yale, right? The large, well-funded private, private educational institutions will continue to be bastions of the humanities. So that's, it's not a problem. For, for, from the point of the elite having cultural production. And indeed, that'll even presumably be the case here. I mean, the, the, the most august universities in this country, although they are technically public universities with public, public funded students at them, they have a lot of money in the bank. They're not going to completely stop doing humanities, even in Australia. No. But there's no idea that Australia has to produce, you know, a kind of, a kind of national culture at all. It's a total optional extra. And I mean, actually, you know, what, what we see from the right, I think, is, is not what you might expect to see from the right, namely a nationalism. It's a kind of, it's a kind of anti-nationalism, right? I mean, the, the, as I've suggested last time, the, the right's symbolism still comes from empire, but they don't really believe that anymore. The, the, the right are no longer genuinely British empire loyalists. I mean, there's, there's some elements of that on the very far right of the Liberal Party. I mean, Tony Abbott obviously was still, doubtless it's not coincidental that he was born in England, but it was still some kind of British Empire loyalist or British loyalist at, at some level. But in general, the right have loyalty only to capital. In, in a pure sense, the, the Liberal Party in this, in this country are pushing a vision of Australia as basically, solely a money-making enterprise. I mean, of course, this is what neoliberalism does generally worldwide, right? I mean, I think it's fair to say, actually, and here, like, obviously, I start to look a bit reactionary, but I think it's fair to say that actually neoliberalism is anti-nationalist. At a really, I mean, this, this kind of right-wing, you know, doubtless problematic right-wing idea that the, the current elite are, quote, globalist, is basically accurate. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the people who really hold the power, uh, it, it's transnational capital who, who has no, no national loyalties. I mean, the, the phenomenon of, I mean, I've suggested this to you, I think, off the podcast, the phenomenon of people like Trump, who are kind of minor capitalists. I mean, how much money does he really have? He's not, he's not a Jeff Bezos, but he, he's a capitalist of some kind. But a kind of minor national, old-style national and nationalist capitalist who's an American chauvinist. These people don't have the real power, if we suppose in a Marxist way, which I do, that the people who are the billionaires are really the ones in charge, regardless of who is holding notional governmental power. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I mean, I know I said I wouldn't keep saying that, but it is it is right. And I think if you go in the Australian context, actually probably, I mean, this is potentially a contentious claim, but probably the last nationalist prime minister was probably Paul Key, in the sense that someone who actually had a understanding and a vision and an ideology of what Australia could, should, is, what it you know could be. Um, whereas once you get to Howard, I mean, Howard obviously had some loyalty to, the, to, to, to England in some kind of sense in a way. I mean, less so than, than Abbott, um, I think. But that's right. And it, it, this is just the conservative parties, the mainstream conservative parties, you know, across the globe for the most part are aligned with capital and that's it. And the tension, of course, as has been you know, discussed ad nauseum, is there's this emergence of a new kind of right, which is, which is a kind of, which is a nationalism which is against this idea of, or counter to this idea of globalist neoliberalism. You see that in Australia writ large. But I think that tension has yet to bubble up with the kind of clarity that it has in other countries yet. But this is yet another another sort of, I mean, it's a bit of a long bow, I think, but this is yet another, the, the, the cuts to, not the cuts rather, but the changes to the university fees 
is just a symptom of this much broader battle. This is right. I mean, the key thing here is that neoliberalism is in the driving seat. And changes, changes are going on kind of around, the, you know, there can be some modifications to, to party lines as long as they don't challenge the hegemony of neoliberalism. I mean, admittedly, Trump's trade war with China is, is somewhat exceptional, right? Neoliberalism is for free trade. Like there's, there's no question about that. But, you know, by and large, all these, these right-wingers, even, you know, including um, lunatic fringe right-wingers like Paul Hansen or Nigel Farage, who's I think, nowhere near as much for the lunatic as Paul Hansen, but sometimes categorised as far right, these guys remain economically neoliberal, right? They, they, they don't challenge the orthodoxy that the, the market is always right, capitalism is the only game. Yeah, this, this, is, this is where we're at. And I also don't think there's much challenge to this really from the left. Like, I'm, I'm happy with the, the Jordan Shanks friendly Geordie's line that, yes, indeed, there are significant differences between the Labour Party in Australia and the mainstream right-wing Liberal Party. And I have no doubt at all that what we're staring down the barrel of in the universities right now would not be happening under a Labour government. However, when we talk about the general vision of Australia that these guys are putting forward. I mean, Keating's vision, which is basically what I described last last week as an anodyne vision of Australia, multicultural Australia, is is very thin on nationalism, uh, and is is again, it's it's prosperity gospel. Keating was the arch, or maybe I should say, or neoliberal in Australia. Like Keating was the guy who brought neoliberalism to Australia. He's the most neoliberal guy going. He's all about the market. And, and class collaboration, explicit class collaborationism around that, based on a wholly vacuous idea that, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's dengist, right? It's the idea that prosperity is good for everyone, including the poor, and that therefore, you know, we just need to take the capitalist road. That's, that's Keating's position. And f- from that point of view, Keating really is... I mean, actually trying to, or was, probably still is, right? Trying to produce a coherent concept to the nation that actually fits into that neoliberal model, which is, you know, open to our immediate borders, which, you know, conceives itself on the basis of our position in a trading block, right? That's, that's, that's Keating's module. Wants to jettison all this kind of uh, conserved, you know, monarchy, flag all this stuff that that's a, a holdover from an earlier period but precisely because it doesn't point in the neoliberal direction i mean i think what the post howard wright have understood correctly is that if you want to grease the wheels of neoliberalism keep the old symbols like that is that is the way to do neoliberalism in australia it's not to try and change the window dressing keep the window dressing but sell the shop uh, my, my metaphor is getting quite tortured at that point but that that's what what howard's done Yep, you know, I have sort of guarded interest and respect in Keating on in certain ways, but this is this is really the um, this is really the tension in his vision is that you think that you can sell this idea of the kind of global agile country as a form of nationalism, um, while also defending things like say you know um, artistic creation and all this kind of stuff. But of course, the logic here, as we see, like if you follow the neoliberal model, is that we end up where we are now, which is the humanities are jettisoned because creation on on the level of the humanities, cannot make any sense within an agile global model, um, other than as a form of production. And again, you can do that elsewhere. I think you've put your your your, um, 
your finger on it is this is the the, the irreconcilable element of, of Keating's um, vision is that it doesn't work. And the the right the Australian right have seen this. They say you know keep the symbols that we're familiar with. So and this comes back to what we were talking about last week in terms of the uh, the visions of the country that have now become mythologized and sedimented in the foundations, the statues, this kind of stuff, while getting rid of everything else. The the country becomes a sort of receptacle. As you said, it's a mining colony. I mean, there's something more to be said there, actually, I think, which is the extent, and we didn't, we barely touched on this last time, but the extent to which the repository of Australian national identity becomes anti-intellectualism and the culture which comes from being a penal colony, an agricultural colony, and a mining colony, which is, you know, hardworking, hard-drinking, uneducated, you know, comes to, to be the identity of Australia. And the kind of brilliance of what the government are doing is it totally goes along with the prevailing identity of who Australians are. Studying the humanities, like the Australian humanities is oxymoronic. I mean, this is the point of the kind of Monty Python sketch, right? Like to, to have a culturally Australian philosophy department looks ridiculous. I mean, of course, they exaggerate it hugely. Look, I'll be honest, I came to this country to do a PhD in philosophy. And I loved what I found, right? Which is what I found when I came here in 2002 were completely unpretentious philosophy department you know, where people would rock up wearing a short and thongs, that's flip-flops for, you know, overseas listeners, and, and, and doing philosophy and, and, and getting stuck into the ideas and often with, you know, like a kind of pragmatist, materialist bent, like there was a certain, you know, that, that kind of thing going on. I'm not a big fan of the kind of cultural pretensions that often attach to philosophy in other settings. But putting the boot into philosophy makes you look Aussie at. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I, that, that, I'm exactly the same. I, I feel like in some ways, probably an Australian philosophy department is in some ways the only kind of philosophy department I could survive in. The humanities, and I guess philosophy even, even more particularly, has such a strange role in Australian culture. I've, I've had many experiences when I used to work as a bike mechanic, that is a push bike mechanic. So when I was in sort of in the labour force, uh, I had many experiences where it became where people would be mocking me for you know doing philosophy, or or the arts more gen, in more more generally. But it became which is fine. One, one's one's used to this, but it became very clear to me that they didn't actually know what philosophy was in any way whatsoever. They used to make I, I'm in particular one person teased me and asked me if I was going to write a poem soon about my work in the bike shop, and it became very clear to me that he thought philosophy was poetry. And so, and that's right. There's a, there's, a, there's a strong strain within Australian culture to disdain education, in particular the humanities. And this is supported by, by liberal governments, that is conservative governments, as part of a broader project to actually basically hollow out the culture, what, what culture there is, hollow it out until it's basically just, a, as you say, an empty receptacle so that you can then do whatever you want with the economy, basically. That is an important factor here, actually, which is that I haven't, I haven't looked through all the cabinet, but certainly in, in the figure of the prime minister, I think we're now dealing really for the first time with, or for the first time in a long time, with a right-wing government that has, is headed by people who aren't educated in the humanities at all. So with Howard and Abbott were both products of the arts law program at Sydney University, right? Which is, I mean, I always think it's, it's the closest analogy to 
Oxbridge that you have in Australia, right? The, the closest analogy to, to, to going to, I mean, of course, Ta Abbott did go to Ox Oxford, right? He was a Rhodes Scholar. But, you know, the, the way you do this in Australia, the, the highest place you can go university-wise is the law program at the university in your, your state. That basically means Sydney and Melbourne, you're going to go to the law school. I don't know, I can't remember how it works at Melbourne, but Sydney University, you can't study, or at least you weren't, didn't used to be able to study law without also studying another subject. And the classic thing to do was to study arts, which means that the very bright and best people who would go on and run this country were doing arts degrees at Sydney University for three years, in addition to doing a law degree, and of course also potentially becoming Rhodes Scholars, the very cream of the crop, Turnbull, our Prime Minister, Abbott as well, I think both of them were Rhodes Scholars, and they're all from law programs because those are the cream of the crop in Australian universities. So the best of the law students go, go and spend a year in Oxford. But that, that means that they're plugged into this kind of old world cultural system which says, uh, you know, you, you need to study, it's good to study philosophy. Like whether, whether they're really, you know, are up on the classics is another matter. But I'm pretty sure old mate Scott Morrison is not of that school. Yes. And I think, I think you make a good distinction there between, you know, people like Turnbull and Abbott and Howard were obviously educated in the humanities in the way that, you know, the elite have always been educated in the humanities. So they know it, whether they're actually truly studying it or whether they're, you know, genuinely sort of embedded within that tradition is another matter, but you can put that to one side. The current crop of conservative, in particular conservative uh, politicians, but I would say it's probably the same for the Labor Party as well. This is the first generation really uh, of politicians who, I read an article on this a couple of months ago, who basically cut their teeth in like the student politics of the 90s which was kind of the, the most facile kind of, you know, genuinely terrible uh, period, uh, supposedly, of student politics. And they were all doing, I think he must have done advertising, or something or something along those lines. I can actually um, report, I looked it up, and, and it, he actually has an honours degree in economic geography, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> well, there goes, there goes our theory. But he did, a B, he did a BSc, which means that, so he would have done geography as a science, but not as a, not not as one of the humanities. I don't yep. think that in any way. Very different. So, and you're absolutely you're absolutely right about the the culture war here is extremely important. Uh, the, the the culture war, I mean, has, has been running one form or another in Australia during this period. These guys did come up in these intense culture war, war battlefields, and this has been this has been playing out for years. I mean, this was playing out. Uh, in the the dying days of the the Howard government, right? When they they introduced VSU voluntary student unionism in Australia, which was 100%, absolutely, uh, and, you know, with, with barely any varnish, a bunch of student right-wing politicians who, of course, because the, the, the left, at least the Labour Party, sometimes the far left, are, are the side that actually control the student unions in this country. And these, these guys who've been student liberals uh, on the right, tired of losing... Basically, from, from once they got into government, axed the student unions as as a kind of as revenge. And a lot of this has, I mean, it's absolutely right. I mean, it's 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 Schmitty and friend enemy stuff. I mean, there's there's no question. These guys, you know, they they were, and you heard this. I mean, you've been around university campuses. You hear this from guys who are studying engineering and give you a spray about doing artsy fartsy subjects, and they, they have this vitriol in them. And this is their chance to put the knife into the hated humanities. You know, it, it's and it's because people, insufferable young lefties 
like like we once were, uh, you know, owned them in campus politics sometime in in the distant past. This is this is really. I think this gets to the nub of it. Is that it, it isn't just a sort of a disdain for the humanities from those either in the either from conservative politics or those perhaps involved in say more hands-on or materialist uh, positions of work or whatever. It, it, it's actually a hatred. It's a hatred for for the arts and the humanities. A lot of it, as I alluded to before, is just because I don't know what it is. It is also a hatred for what what it represents. Now, what it represents to them is not always clear to me. I think you're right in some sense. It does represent a kind of, you know, a disdain for the kind of wanky left-wing young person, and that's probably justified in many ways. But it, I think it also represents something else, but I don't really know what it is. There's a bit, like the, the, the level of disdain and hatred in, in, that you come across occasionally can, can be quite surprising. You know, it, it really is. It's interesting, and I mean, we're not the best place to understand it because we're on the other side of the fence. One thing that's absolutely clear, for example, is that they, you know, there's a perception, and I mean, frankly, I think this is more broadly held outside of the university than by right-wingers in the university, but the two coalesce around this issue. So if you're, if you're a tradesman and you see, like, guys going to university wearing corduroy jackets and ha- having, having a great time at taxpayers' ex- expense, right, that at least that's how it's perceived. I mean, to be honest, it, it generates resentment. Right, I mean, this 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 resentment of the the apparent enjoyment of the other of having something that that you can't have. Every every individual, I think, has a kind of individualized version of this story. It's very hard to kind of mm. capture it, but like it's it's you know like the resentment that the pretty girl went out with the left wing guy and not not Tony Abbott after he slammed her into a wall and threatened her. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think it also comes down to it also comes down to what I said before in terms of like you know the the reduction of all thought to instrumentality. You know, if you and it, you know a form of naturalism, like if you think that the world is simply the case and that uh, the reason why things are the way they are due to things like human nature that are kind of irrevo- you know sort of irrevocable and and sort of transhistorical, when you see someone doing something like the humanities, which in your world doesn't change anything and is just, in inverted commas, a waste of time. You know, nothing actually comes from it because you think that thinking in itself has no kind of direct correlation to the way the world is. Then, of course, it looks like nonsense. Of course, it looks like... The irony, of course, is that you can only see the alternative by doing the humanities. (laughs) So it it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd go much harder on this, right? Because it's not... I mean, the, the kind of meek answer is just like, oh, well, the idea that philosophy is not valuable, is itself a philosophical position, which is true. But like, I'd go much further than that, which is like the, the idea that making money and making things and even extending life, right, through, through these instrumental practices are completely meaningless exercises unless there is something to produce higher meaning. But, uh, you know, what, what, I, what I mean is that there needs to be a higher meaning function that human activity serves. Like just staying alive, making money and making things are totally useless activities in themselves. They have no use value unless they have a, te- a telos to them. Yep. And honestly, I don't think philosophy does a good job of providing that as philosophy currently exists. However, what is going on here is a, a, a culture that is spiritually dead and is trying to foreclose the very possibility of the justification of itself. 
logical level, I feel like we're, we're looking at a culture that is actually collapsing on itself. Yeah, I think that's right. And like you, this idea that you need to have meaning other than, you know, beyond the kind of just bare necessities of life is clearly correct. But I think it also kind of comes down to where we think meaning actually emerges from or derives from, you know, so you need some kind of, you know, orientating sense of, or higher sense of meaning. But I mean, you can have that without doing an arts degree, right? Like, so like this, there needs to be some kind of, I think we need to be a bit more maybe careful here because it's not, it's not to say that anyone who does an arts degree has some kind of higher connection to, or sort of closer connection to higher forms of meaning. I think you said it's a, it's a culture sort of spiritually dead. And so it's a culture that doesn't actually understand its own self-maintenance. But we also have to say that it's not as if, you know, the kind of commercial arts degree as it currently exists is, is maintaining culture, because that would be absurd to say that. Yeah, obviously that's, that's right. I think and what, I'm, what I'm claiming is that you need to produce meaning both at an individual and at a societal level. Historical civilizations have people who are devoted to the production of meaning for the society, right? And, and you know, it, that, and that, I mean, we're basically, I'm basically talking about religion here, right? So that, that's the historic way this has worked. So you have, you know, priestly castes, you have, you know, people who are engaged in, and it filters down, there's, there's transmission routes so that a meaningful world is constructed. And yeah, there's, there's no question that the philosophy as it currently exists is barely involved in such a function. But it's not that it's entirely not, because we do still have religions and philosophy is still implicated, at least in some of them. I mean, the Catholic Church is a really good example of something that does have some kind of transmission belt. Like they have philosophy departments in Catholic universities that do theological training for priests and that those priests do still kind of to a increasingly small and fragmented flock uh, transmit some kind of meaning function. But yeah, by and large, philosophy is not doing doing that job. And it was never intended to do that job, right? Like at least, you know, modern, well, I mean, even going back, going back to the Greeks, like philosophy was not, was not, unlike religion, was not designed to produce meaning. I mean, there's philosophical schools that did for some people. There have been various attempts, like, I mean, existentialism is like an obvious one in the 20th century to kind of try to grapple with the meaninglessness of existence and try to suture that in some way. I largely think philosophy is, is barking up the wrong tree, wrong tree. And that is, that is one reason why, in the end, I have to kind of see this. I think, I guess I haven't said this, but I think, I think this, this dissolution of the universities, which is really what we're looking at here, is the fulfillment of the Enlightenment project. That the wow. dis, disenchantment has to lead, ultimately, it has to turn itself, every revolution does, right? So ultimately, the, the function of the philosopher, really, I mean, the function of the rationalist philosopher is to think the way out of religion, at which point, once you've actually disenchanted the world and religion is gone, the philosopher becomes completely redundant. That's where I see this going. And look, there's another dimension of this that I, this actually is helpful in segueing into, which is the technical and technological dimension of the crisis in the universities, which is not to be underestimated. And indeed, it is being underestimated by the government, I think, in their response. So, you know, the government have this kind of, ah, oh, you know, I mean, it's very typical of our liberal government here who are stuck in the past by, you know, about 20 years, right? They still think that, I mean, literally like agriculture and mining, maybe medical research, some, some, some hard sciences, 
and a feature of this country. But the, the bottom line here, surely, is that university education at this point is doubly redundant. It's redundant as a process because you no longer need to go to a university to get this information. Right? You no longer need to be taught by someone. That is not to say, incidentally, that there's not huge added value of going to university. And I will defend it till I'm blue in the face, but the way universities have been tending to function over the last 50 years has greatly accentuated the pure transmission of information over the serious pastoral engagement with students, which is actually what the university offers people and needs to be offering people. And the university is trying, I think, to pivot a little bit back there, but we'll see how that goes. But by and large, the, I mean, it used to be, if you wanted to find out about X, you needed to go and, and learn from the experts directly in a place of learning, otherwise you wouldn't get that information. And it's obviously pointed out now, and it's definitely the case, that technology has meant that that is significantly removed to consideration. It's also the case that the need for people to know this stuff is being made redundant by technology. And I think that's probably even more crucial. Like the need to train people in anything other than robot repair is increasingly just unnecessary. The, the really important thing about this though is that actually where this logically leads to is that the university needs to, far from pivoting towards what the government wants to pivot towards now, which is these instrumentalized knowledges that people need to do things, exactly the opposite. The only, the only thing the university could usefully do is precisely something to try to, to uh, you know, restore meaning and criticism. Because those are the things that you need humans to do and aren't going to be just, just done by AI and robots in 20 years. I mean, I was particularly struck by the agriculture being in here, which, I mean, it's partly because of this idiosyncratic arrangement in Australia where the governing right-wing party is always beholden to this junior coalition partner, the National Party, which is, is made up basically of farmers. But, I mean, the idea that, that having more people educated in agriculture in Australia is going to significantly impact anything is, is pretty preposterous, I think. I mean, maybe in, in you know, the short term, there is still, there actually is a need for more people with agriculture degrees, but I think... That, that's such a striking idea, though, that it's actually precisely the humanities that universities should be teaching. And actually, of course, you know, a lot of the blame where we are now in terms of, you know, the, the gutting of the humanities departments across the country, or at least the, the proposed gutting that is indirectly via the increased cost, is that a, a, a lot of the blame li li lies with the university as well, in the sense that when you reduce when you reduce the arts degree to just this kind of mechanistic transferal of very basic forms of knowledge from, you know, very basic forms of the tradition. And, you know, you, for example, you do things like increase class sizes and reduce and reduce lectures and this kind of stuff. So that the nature of the education is impoverished. Then of course the natural, the next natural, natural step is to eliminate it because it, it looks ridiculous. It looks absurd. You know, and I'm and I I'm party to that in the sense that I see it. You know, I see it happen. You know, even in this time I've been teaching the humanities, it's it's become further impoverished, and that's in what six seven years. And so, what you say is correct because ultimately, what the university should be doing is doubling down on that which nothing else can offer, which is to say, an engagement with it, which is an engagement with the with the with the tradition and an engagement with with thinking. What 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 thinking can actually do and how it can actually work in the world. 
And that's not just to say this is a kind of, oh, you know, vocational idea that the arts faculty teaches you critical thinking, which is kind of, that's exactly how we got there. This kind of logic is how we got here, right? Because if critical thinking is reduced to the kind of bullshit we do in arts, arts degrees now, then get rid of critical thinking, right? Um, <laughs> that seems to be the problem. Yeah, look, that's, I mean, you're talking about the instrumentalization of the arts and humanities itself, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's preposterous, but that's, I mean, that's what's had to happen in, in the, you know, the age when only instrumental skills are valued, a philosophy degree is, oh, it gives you critical thinking skills that will get you a job in X, Y, and Z, which incidentally is true, but like yeah. the worst possible way of looking at philosophy. And but that's not why other. you should do philosophy. <laughs> no, but what, what I want to circle back to is this, the question of a kind of, but I, I want to just actually, the, the, really, if, if we're going to be clear-eyed about this, the, the main necessity for the universities at this point, which I, I think is the clear difference between the central-left government and the way it positioned itself on this, even if it's neoliberal, versus the way our idiotic current government are positioning on this, which is that it's an economic necessity for the universities to keep going because the post-work economy is looming. I mean, I... Rumours of the death of work are often exaggerated, but... <laughs> if only. It's, it's, it's really, it's radically unclear, right, what's, what's going to happen, I think. I mean, look, I, I tend to the view that, you know, it's, it's a popular view, and I think it, it seems about right to me, namely that increasing automisation will genuinely, genuinely see a long-term decline in employment, full stop. So, you know, as... All as every, every you know, there's so many industries now which seem to basically be moribund. I mean, universities you could include in this for reasons I've suggested, but a, a lot of industries are in a worse position. I mean, clearly the media, the, you know, that that's got really serious problems. So television, print media, all of that, really really serious problems. Basically, anything that can be distributed for free on the internet is in serious trouble. Basically, brick and mortar retail is is dying. Uh, it's going to be replaced by Amazon. It seems that those changes will reduce the number of people employed in these sectors. It's not clear where the jobs are going to come back from. This obviously has been accentuated by the COVID nineteen shutdown, which has has you know really accelerated, like particularly the decline of brick and mortar retail. If the market is being threatened by the decline, which is what will happen. Right, the, the very operation of capitalism in the market is going to be threatened by the decline of work, which I think is basically the situation we're in now. And the government recognised that, at least the temporary basis. The government recognised that right now, the survival of the economy is being threatened by the lockdown that the government themselves instituted, so they therefore have to prop it up. But longer term, and I don't think the government are thinking long term, but the government is still thinking we're going to kickstart the economy and then, because they're, they're, they're radical right-wing neoliberals, even within the neoliberal spectrum. I mean, this is the difference between Labour and, and the Conservatives. It's you have right-wing versus left-wing neoliberals. They have the idea they can just kickstart things, but in, in actual fact, you have to be doing everything you can to basically keep unemployment down by providing something else. I mean, what the university is, in a way that almost nothing else is, it's it's something that provides employment, but also provides something for people to do other than employment, namely education. That, that's like a miracle cure to the unemployment problem. Like, you want to be in this situation from the point of view of economic management, encouraging as many people to go to university to do whatever as possible. What the government has said is that they're going to expand massively the number of university places in the next 10 years while not giving any extra funding. 
But, but, but I think this just proves your kind of original thesis, which is that this government actually has no idea what it's doing in terms of it has it has no vision in that regard. And and the the the, the mythology of the snapback just shows that the idea that they can because really I mean and, and we when we touched on this what was it last week I think where the idea that things will return to normal. But no, if anything, this is the beginning of something new. And this this the, the attacks on the humanities are kind of an attempt to restart the old culture wars or the old kind of economic and culture wars. But actually it's all this is all bullshit. None of the rules apply anymore. And no one has any idea what's going on. And as you said, it's radically unclear, but it's extremely clear that the government has nothing beyond the neoliberal model. And if it, the neoliberal model doesn't apply anymore, they're fucked. Like, because as you said, they, they correctly propped up the economy. This was the right thing to do. But now they, they, they can't last doing it for four months without kind of an ideological implosion. Yeah, I mean, the, the problematic here, I think, is really, really interesting because basically what happened in the midst of the pandemic is the government did something that we've never seen capital liberal government in Australia do before, which is listen to expert advice and, and totally submit to it. So, you know, the, the, and, and it was, was the best thing that Scotty has ever done. Like Scott Morrison basically looked at this problem, said, I do not understand what is going on here. Actually, you know, to, to his credit, admitted that he didn't know what he's doing and just said, well, we will be guided by expert advice from epidemiologists. In fact, it's not just Scott Morrison who did this. It seems basically every government has done this. I'm not so sure about the United States, uh, but certainly this is what happened, even in, in countries that seriously mismanaged it. So uh, the UK and Sweden, which took a kind of opposite approach and, and this kind of herd immunity approach, I think it's emerged that basically what happened is those governments just happened to have epidemiologists who were at best wrong and at worst incompetent. Uh, and I mean, there may also be some governmental mismanagement. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's not the case. But anyway, basically, governments generally said this, we're going to let the epidemiologists make decisions. <laughs> What's so striking? I mean, one thing that people pointed out that was really striking is it's really interesting that the government do not listen to climate scientists when they make environmental decisions. And they don't yeah. at all. So they have when it comes to the environment, they have a totally science free approach. But this is also to a large extent is true of economics. And, and this, this is kind of wild. So we're seeing now that the technocratic response to COVID is being rolled back with the blessing of the epidemiologists, they're saying, okay, you can roll it back now. Well, that goes back to business as usual, which is a completely uninformed madcap approach to economics. It's not like a huge head scratcher. Oh, why, why do they do this? It's, it's fucking obvious, which is to say that they don't care about expert advice that comes to economics or the environment because it's then the bottom line. I mean, what is actually quite astonishing is that they were willing to put the bottom line aside when it comes to the epidemiology. And I presume that was, it was a point at which it's biopolitics, that is the, the politics of protecting life briefly trumped the politics of capital accumulation. But I mean, we're, we're back in business as usual. Yeah, it was a blip, I think. And, and what will be really interesting if, it, if there is a second wave, which presumably there will be in some, in some way, because presumably what will happen is that they won't actually lock, down, lock, lock it down again because they've basically admitted if they do lock it down again, the economy's finished. So I assume this, this time they'll just, they'll just let it run its course, like sort of more like they did in Britain. I, I, I actually don't know. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but it seems like they will, like they'll probably let the second, the second wave run its course. I mean, not obviously not entirely, but if, depending on the severity of it, but it seems like they're not going to lock it down in the way they did again. 
So what that means for the second wave, I don't know. Well, it, mean, it means that locking it down is not going to prevent it. Like if you lock it down again, we're just postponing the inevitable. Like there's no, unless you plan to have a permanent lockdown, which, well, I'm actually pretty sure it's not realistic. I mean, I'm pretty sure that people will just stop observing it. In fact, if you try to lock it down again at this point, I don't think people would observe it. In, in the I numbers, think people would refuse. Effective. Yeah, at least enough. And it's always about proportions. I mean, enough, because enough people didn't observe it anyway, but it's, 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 this happened in the UK, you know, before the BLM protest started. I mean, the, the British police advised the government that they could no longer enforce the lockdown because it was being breached so so frequently and flagrantly that there's just no, yeah. no chance you're going to be able to do anything about it. Yeah. Look, I, I think we should probably leave it there with, unless you have any final thoughts. No, no. I'm looking forward to speaking next week, Mark. Yeah, yeah, no. As, as, <laughs> what will happen next? Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, that's right. And I'm sure something cursed and terrible will happen in the next week that we can talk about. Yikes. All right, James. Ciao for now. Take it easy. See you later. Supply now.